Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we talk about the business of children's publishing with Jasmine Richards. She's an editor, a writer, and the award-winning founder of Story Mix Studio. Jasmine has worked with book series like BeastQuest and for companies like Oxford University Press and Working Partners. In this conversation, we talk to Jasmine about her role, both working for a book packager and also a publishing company. And we ask her what she thinks makes a children's book series commercial. We also dive into her her own company, Story Mix, and her process for taking writing projects from idea to outline to completed manuscript. And she goes into detail about exactly how she sells her ideas to publishers. And she takes us into her thought process for generating incredible stories for children. Jasmine is so passionate about children's books, and she is knowledgeable about the industry. If you want to peek behind the scenes of children's publishing, join us as we speak with the one and only Jasmine Richards. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the London Writer Salon, Jasmine. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hey, Jasmine. So lovely to have you here. So we're going to start with a pretty straightforward question. What was your relationship with books while you were growing up? My relationship with books, it was and is <laughs> a long-running, intense relationship. I don't know if you, any of you have ever read a book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, but when I look back at my life and my career, when I think about what was the thing that made the difference for me, it was reading. And in particular, I think it was the proximity to a library. So I grew up in North London, a place called Hornsey, and we lived on the top of the hill in a block of flats, so in social housing. And at the bottom of the hill was Stroud Green Library. So even with little legs, it took about three minutes to get there. And I spent a lot of time in that library and I spent a lot of time reading. And I was very lucky because the librarians there, we, we must treasure our librarians because they steered me away from the books that I wasn't quite ready for because I was quite a good reader, which meant that I, my reading level was probably often above my maturity. So, you know, you can get yourself into a whole world of trouble there. So they would be like, okay, not quite ready for that yet, Jasmine. Come and read this, try this, and kind of fed my appetite for reading. And, you know, my mum was a single parent. There was no way she could have afforded the number of books that I got through in a week. So, yeah, it was, and it is still, it's the thing that changed my life and it's the thing that shaped me. Big fan of reading, as you can see. <laughs> uh, and so are we, of course. And then you went on to Oxford. What did you study at Oxford? English. Surprise, surprise. So I, went, I basically did a degree for three years where I got to read more stuff. I mean, oh, goodness. Oxford was such a culture shock for me. 
And what's interesting is my English teacher really didn't want me to go to Oxford. She was really worried that it would kill my love of the subject because we'd be reading all of the classics, the canon. And I, I think the thing that they called modern literature was anything post 1500s, you know. So <laughs> I think she was really worried about that. But actually, I think what Oxford gave me was a really solid grounding in terms of the canon and sort of understanding that understanding how to flip it it's almost like you know how you need to understand the rules before you can break it you know before you can break them I think that's what Oxford was so useful for that and was so useful for going into we'll talk about that but working in publishing publishing in so many ways and this isn't a good thing I don't think anyway but is a sort of microcosm of Oxford or Oxford is a microcosm of publishing I don't know but they're very linked I would say and we read somewhere that when you graduated from Oxford before you got into publishing you had a stint at Scotland Yard and you were toying with the idea of becoming a detective okay so a tiny confession yeah when I was when my first book was being published needed to write my biog right you want to sound interesting in your biog just standard facts you want to sound interesting so it's true but it's a stretched truth. <laughs> so I did an internship after my degree that the civil service put on. And it was about trying to encourage people from university to go into the police force. So I did this internship at Scotland Yard. I actually had a really good time and I was really tempted. But the thing that put me off was I would have to do two years on the beat or two years as a bobby. And I was like, no, 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 not, not built for that sorry so that was the end of that career path so even if you were going to go into management and go that route everyone had to do two years on the beat so it was true but it was an internship also you used your imagination in your biography we we applaud that I mean yeah we're storytellers that's it right and instead you went into publishing and I'd love to just have a little journey through a publishing career you were on the graduate trainee program at Penguin you were an editor at Working Partners which is a a book packager or a fiction packager, and you were lead editor on some actually big series names. Like anyone with kids will recognize Rainbow Magic, Beast Quest. I'm just not sure if it's actually big in the US or it's just in the UK. Yeah, I think Beast Quest was bigger in the UK than it was in the US. Because in the UK, up to 100 and so books. I don't think it went that far in the States. Yeah. I see. And then also you worked on My Secret Unicorn. And then after that stint at Working Partners, the book packager, you moved to Oxford University Press, OUP, worked on their children's list. So I have a few questions around this stage of your career, but maybe we start with some basic definition, just for anyone who's new to this. Can you explain the difference between working for a company like Working Partners versus Oxford University Children's Press? Okay. So one is a packager and one is a publisher. And honestly, it's the thing that I spend most of my time trying to tease out and explain to people because they say, oh, Story Mix is a publisher. And I'll be like, no, 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 we're not a publisher. So let me try and explain. A packager, I don't love that phrase actually because it makes it sound like we're making baked beans. We're not like making stories. And there's a lot of love and care and tension that goes into that but it's just the common parlance it's called a packager and packages have actually been around since around the 1950s so if I believe I'm correct with this things like Nancy Drew certainly Sweet Valley High 
were created by packages. So it's it, a packager is a company or a group of people who create IP, also known as intellectual property, right? And their business is to sell the license to the IP that they've created to publishers. So their customer is the publisher. And my customer as StoryMix, founder of StoryMix, is the publisher. But you're not just selling the IP. So let's say I've come up with an idea about a kid who finds a dragon egg in Brixton. That's a place in South London for those that are in other parts of the world. I've come up with this idea. I see it as a 10-book series arc, right? So we're going to have some epic adventure over 10 books. When I pitch that idea to a publisher, I'm not just selling that idea. I'm not just selling the fact that I found the writer who is going to write the premise that I've created and written for them, the roadmap, effectively. Also selling my editorial time or my company's editorial time. So the way it should work is we've ideated something. We've done the storyline, the roadmap. We've found the writer. The writer has written to the storyline. We've edited it. We give it to the publisher. And the publisher should be able to put a cover on that book, get it typeset, pitch it to Waterstones, Barnes and Noble, whoever, and we've sold the license. So effectively, the packager almost becomes the author in that way, but it's an author who's also can edit the thing that's been created. So it's the IP and it's also the editorial time. Is that is that an all right definition? Yeah, that's a good introduction to book packaging. And at OUP at Oxford University Press, you were a traditional publisher or did you do some IP work for them as well? Oh, it's interesting. So I was at Working Partners, who are one of the most well-known packages. So the two guys who founded that company actually came off the back of Sweet Valley High and all of that experience there and came up with a series called Animal Arc, which is like a really long-running vet series and things like Heartland, really well-known series. And it's at the sharp, pointy, commercial end of business. It is. And traditionally, it's those kinds of books where you're like, wow, I can't believe one person wrote all those books. How did they write all those books? They didn't write all those books. Okay, there's a team of creatives who are creating the story world, the characters, the storylines. And there's a team of writers who are putting the meat on the bones. Right. So you might write one book one in the series another writer will do book three and the editor is the one making sure there's a continuity of voice across all those books now at OUP so I, I kind of got headhunted from working partners to OUP which was a really literary list prize-winning list which is your much more typical author in a garret somewhere writing beautiful texts an editor working with them and tighten it and hone it but that IP is very much the author's and the editor is there to kind of support and make as strong as possible whilst also serving the needs of the publisher, right? So if the book is going in a direction that maybe feels a little bit less commercial, the editor might go, oh, hang on, that's feeling a bit too old and we thought it was going to be 9 to 12. There might be a bit of that that happens. But at the end of the day, the author's name is on the, the IP, belongs to the author. Now, what's really interesting is... I kind of ended up coming full circle because OUP asked me to set up that in-house IP development part of the business, which they call Creative Kitchen, where I effectively did what I did at Working Partners. We ideated in-house, then found a writer, and on we go. So I've always been pulled back to IP. 
So publishers in-house will also create their own IP as well as buying from an agent, which is the conventional way to acquire books. Right. And we're going to be going a little bit into how you apply this to your own studio now, because obviously you continue to create IP, but now with your own company. I wonder if it's possible, if you think back to your experience of working with commercial fiction, you have any thoughts on what you've learned from working with commercial fiction, how you apply this to your own work? Are there any pillars of commercial fiction that you could point to? Or maybe if not that, just, I guess, words or ideas around what makes fiction commercial? children. Okay, so there are definitely some writers in the world who will say, I do not write with a reader in mind. You know, I write for myself. I write the story that is kind of meant to be written. Those books can be commercially successful. Of course they can. In fact, some of the most commercially successful books are books that start like that. But when you talk to me about commercial fiction, it's those books, those titles that are very clearly centering the reader and who they think this book is going to appeal to, almost as the starting point. And that doesn't mean that the book doesn't have soul and that there hasn't been love that goes into it. But it's kind of like, what is the wish fulfillment for this reader? Are we hitting all of those notes so that it's a really fully satisfying read? And even more importantly, are we making it as easy as possible to sell this book into the trade? And when I talk about the trade, I'm talking about booksellers, okay? So people like Barnes & Noble or Waterstones, because the number of books that are created every year and published every year is phenomenal. So how do you get heard over all of that noise? And in my experience, and again, different writers, and in fact, probably different editors will have different points of view. They'll say, write the book you want to write. But from what I've seen, The way you stand out and make noise in this really noisy marketplace is to have a very, very clear message, is to just hit the genre, is to hit the, you call it log lines in films. Like So when that sales director goes in and they've got about 30 seconds to pitch each book for the next six months, that log line that makes the seller, you know, the book buyer who's buying for all of the books across the country go, oh, hang on send that one to me. So it's all of these words and all of this hard work boiled down to a line. So anything that is helping that process to happen, that is what I think of as commercial fiction. So if there was one tip, and again, this is my point of view, is but just to understand the journey your book has to go on. And it's a really long journey. So it's the pitch that you're going to make to the agent to get an agent in the first place. It's the pitch that the agent has to make to the editor. And then the editor likes it. It's the pitch that they have to make at the acquisitions meeting. An acquisitions meeting will have the marketing director there. It will have the head of sales, head of production. It will have the finance person who, frankly, you know, they could be selling baked beans. It's like, does this stack up? We're going to have all of those people. The message has to convince them. Then that sales director has to go and convince the buyer at Barnes & Noble Then the bookseller on the shop floor has to convince the reader. And with children's books, there's an added layer there because not only does it have to appeal to the adult buyer, also has to apply and appeal to the child reader. And then if that message is really clear and it's really worked, then that child in the playground or at recess will 
tell their friends what the pitch is for this book and the reason why they love it. And they'll do it in the line and then it will travel like this. I'm sorry to use the word virus, <laughs> but travel contaminating all those children and they want to read it. And that is what a commercial idea does. It's like a really succinct way of cramming in all of those words and storytelling into a pithy line. That's a very long answer and I'm sorry. Very helpful though. And <laughs> I guess if we fast forward a little bit, so eventually you left Oxford University Press to freelance and then start your own thing, Story Mix, your own book packager for lack of a, a better name or a story studio, fiction studio, as you call it. Yeah, fiction studio. Yeah. Fiction studio, which I love. But not just any fiction studio. So you created one and the way you describe it is to create children's stories that put kids of color in the center of narratives filled with joy and adventure. Can you tell us about the idea for Story Mix, why you decided to start it? Yes. So in 2018, I think it was, my son was five and I'd worked really hard to grow this little bookworm. Obviously, I work in publishing. I love books. I want my kids to love books. And it wasn't always easy to find picture books that featured a child that looked like my son, but I could find them. And sometimes I have to buy in from the States. And because I work in publishing, I can ask people. But we were moving from picture books to those first chapter books. So those books for five to eight year olds. And I was in the bookshop. I was looking at the shelf and I could not find a single book that centered a child that looked like my son. Not a single one. And I had this moment of absolute rage, real rage, but the rage wasn't just at publishing. It was also at myself because I was looking at these shelves and I could see the books that I had worked on. I could see the books that I'd ideated, taking up loads of space in this five to eight section. And I think back to the moment when we conceived the idea for Beast Quest, which is this long running series that is now over a hundred books. And it didn't occur to me to say even and I was the youngest person in the room at that point probably about 22 or 23 the only person of color in that room for sure but it didn't even occur to me to say hey this is a fantasy series why don't we make our hero black kid Asian kid any other kid than a kid called Tom right white kid called Tom and if I had said it and if we had done it in 2018 when I was looking at that shelf there'd be a hundred books in that five to eight section that featured a little black boy. So in that moment, I was like, okay, so I could be really angry about this. I could just carry on raging <laughs> in the middle of Waterstones. Then I thought, well, I'll write more books as an author. And we'll talk about me as an author later. I was like, if I'm lucky, I write one book a year. I'm not the fastest. I was like, okay, so how do I change this as quickly as possible? And then I was like, oh, I, I become a packager, right? I use all of that skill that I've built up over the years, all of those contacts, understanding the business, and I'm going to become a packager and I'm going to be laser focused about who I center in these stories. And I'm going to be laser focused about which writers are going to write on those series. Because at, at that point, there were some stats around only 1% of kids' protagonists being kids of color. Also, the number around the, the creators. So in terms of those who got to create children's books, this is in the UK, all of these stats in the UK, but I think 2% of children's creators, and that's writers and illustrators, were people of colour, right? So there were two problems. It wasn't just that there weren't characters of colour. There was also an issue about creators of colour. And the, I felt packaging could answer both of those because they would create opportunities 
and it's going to create the content that's going to make the impact. That's beautiful. So you have this idea, you're fueled with passion, with rage, and your past, your history too. What was the first step? Like, what was the, how did you go about starting this? Did you have an idea already in mind and then you tried to find writers? What was that first step to make this a real thing? So, of course, the first thing I did was got a business card printed because it's official. It's official. And the business was called In the Mix at that point. Mm. I got, and then I faffed about with a website for a bit. And I kind of mock myself for that. But actually, the website was me doing a business plan, really. And I was too skint to pay somebody else to do it. So I just made it in Wix. And it's not the pretty, it's still the same website I have today, actually. But working through that website was me doing a business plan. And then I got a little bit distracted because some freelance work came in where um, I was working with some celebrities. I won't go off on too much of a digression, but let's just say working with celebrities to help them create content. I was laser focused before I became even more laser focused because I I was a bit like, wow, they want to use all my skills to further their agenda. Do I care that their agenda is launching a hair care brand? True story. Do I care about that? Really? No, I don't care about that. So what do I care about? So even though it's hard because there's money on the table, I'm like, actually, all I'm doing is furthering their agenda. What's my agenda? What is the impact I want to make? What's my legacy, right? So um, I needed that bit to happen, actually, with the celebrity fiction. And it was helpful when I was talking to publishers. I was like, I've just recently done these two books. And the celebrities were celebrities of colour. So actually, it was helpful. It gave me a little bit of glamour, along with the 15 years experience. The other thing I did is I spoke, and if I was just someone outside the industry that came along with this idea, I can't imagine how hard it would be to get off the ground. But because I'd been in publishing for 15 years, all the people I started with, right, as a graduate trainee, they were now all editorial directors and publishers, and they are peers, and in some cases, friends. So when I went to them, I'm like, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? They were like, if you can do what you're saying you're going to do, which is create commercial fiction, right, that's going to sell. So it's not about it being worthy because that just drives me crazy. Like, this isn't about, you're not doing me a favor. These are great stories, okay, that just so happen to center black and brown kids. And they are stories for everyone. So they're like, if you can do that, we'll buy these books. So I suppose I did that was market testing. I was checking in with my customers yeah, so I was getting rich, but so the hardest thing for me was convincing writers to write the storylines that I've created because I was still unproven as a packager. But there was definitely some early supporters and writers who were like, I just believe in the mission of it. It might not work. I know you can't pay me very much, but let's just see what happens. And they will always be so dear to my heart because they took a punt with their time and sold them. I've sold everything I've pitched so far. Can I just say that? Really? Yeah. Well done. What was the first project you sold? Because it might help to give a little context to what we're talking about with some details. And if you do have a copy. Yeah, let me... You do have a skill of having some incredible concepts. I'd love for you to give us the pitch for those books. (laughs) Okay, hang on. Now, which one will I show you first? So this is the series I sold first. Honestly, you'll see a pattern, quite pragmatic. So this series here, Aziza's Secret Fairy Doll. So there are some things that we call kind of evergreens in kids' books. 
especially in this younger age range. So fairies, unicorns. This is five to eight. This is five to eight. Yeah. So this is 10,000 words. So the writer on this, she's called Tolo Kogu. She's just her first novel all under her own steam called Onyeka and the Academy of the Sun. It's just published. But she took a punt. She took a punt. I just said, I want to do a series that is going to center a little black girl who gets to be a fairy. Because as, as bonkers as this will sound, that didn't exist, doesn't exist until Aziza. And the story is that she gets to be a fairy. It's not a story about her being black. Again, I know it seems ridiculous that I have to say this as a caveat, but it's really important because so often when you have books that center black and brown kids, the story is about their ethnicity and really often about trauma. You know, it's not just about them being kids so for me I was absolutely focused on this young girl getting to be a girl a child young young carefree not that thing that so often happens with black girls in particular where they're seen as more adult so we see her as vulnerable you know we see her as trying to figure stuff out and she's in the countryside and she's living her best life that is it it's not any more complicated than that I suppose the twist, the twist was instead of just centering European mythology in this sort of fairy world that she crosses into, I wanted to explore other mythologies as well. So research other mythologies. In fact, the name Aziza is a type of woodland creature from West Africa. It's a type of winged fairy-like creature. And so Aziza was named after fairies and she's really into fairies. So um, for example, we have a character called Mrs. Saeed, who is a bunny with a unicorn horn. And that's a mythical creature from the Middle East, which is called an almirage. So instead of just seeing those European mythological creatures, we get a bit more multicultural. Mm. This is all really interesting. I wanted to just go back to some of the terminology that you've been using around what happens in a studio. It makes me think of a writer's room, like in the screen for screenwriting. So it feels like you're creating a writer's room. You have the, you know, the lead writer, you have the main concept, you bring together writers or you get help with the concept for the plot, and then you pitch to a publisher. And I'd love to just deconstruct this a little bit and go back to the basics. So first of all, say you know you want to come up with a new series, middle grade, YA, something like that. Where do you start? How do you start to generate ideas? Where are you looking for inspiration? So... <laughs> question it's always the question that when I do school visits kids like where do you get your ideas from I am such a thief I'm stealing all the time from everywhere my children have got to the point like it's just like we're not even going to say what we're thinking mommy like you're just gonna steal it right I'm just like I just feel like my like my mind is just always searching searching teasing out unintentional connections or unintentional connections and things that so for example I, it's honestly I, I'm trying to it's try, so hard to kind of explain my <laughs> thought processes but for example I'm working on an idea at the moment which is set in Victorian England and the ingredients I'm not going to go into detail but the ingredients one ingredient came from me going to Hamley's which is a toy shop in London with my kids and reading on a little plaque somewhere that Queen Victoria used to frequent Hamleys. 
alongside that, I've been reading a book about Queen Victoria's, this is just separately. And it just so, but it's because I was reading this book and then I was in Hamleys and I saw the information that the connection happened. I've been reading a book about Queen Victoria. She had this habit of collecting godchildren from across the empire, right? So from Africa, from Asia, she just kind of collect them, a bit like dolls. She was fascinated with dolls. Think you'll see where I'm going, okay? She would collect them and they were called the imperial godchildren. So I've been reading that book and thinking, oh, this is so interesting, like, because it's children and it's historical and they're like these birds in gilded cages and they all died really young. And this is the other thing, I'm like, actually so many of them had sad lives what would I need to do to give them a happier ending right there's a lot of that which is looking at historical figures like how could I flip it and yes examine the trauma but how could I give them a different ending so then toy shop imperial godchildren Victoria's fascination with dolls and it all starts to sort of swirl away in a pot in my brain and that is how it happens so often it might be three or four different things that feel could be quite unconnected and then I sort of just bring them together you're stirring in the magic in your cauldron how many of these do you have at any one time do you store them and think okay I've got these three ideas and I'm gonna think which one resonates with me the most in a couple I am such a terror for that really I feel like I've created a business completely suited to the way that my brain works because I have ideas all the time ideas aren't the thing that I find difficult so what I try and do is I have the idea I actually use something called notion which I really love which is um, a way of ordering my thoughts and I put everything down but it's the ones that keep on um, I don't know falling off the shelf and saying hey 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 what about me what about me you haven't thought about me for for I'll go okay okay put that one back and if it keeps on falling down I'm like okay I need to give you a bit of attention. But that's, I feel like that's my superpower and my curse is that I want, I do that with all of them. So then what I need to start doing, and I'm still making this up, really, I'm still making this up. I'm like, right, I can't do all of these storylines by myself. When I started the company, you know, I was doing quite a lot of the storylines by myself, but because I have so many ideas and I've had success now and publishers want to acquire more books. I can't do it all by myself. So I'm always just looking for creatives who I think have great story brains and could come in a room with me and brainstorm, write storylines. So then you've got the creative stream, which are the storyliners. And then you've got this whole other stream who are the actual writers who will write to the storyline. And I found most of those writers by teaching creative writing courses. So publishers really often say to me, because there's this whole sense of scarcity around black and brown talent is the truth of it. So they'll be like, Jasmine, Jasmine, how do you find, how do you find all these writers? Like, you know, just wondering where they are. And then I go, oh, on a full moon, I dance around a tree. (laughs) And they're like, ha ha, that's very funny. And I'm like, ha ha. (laughs) And I go, I'm just, I just like, I go to festivals. And I don't see other people from other publishing houses at those festivals, right? And I'm teaching creative writing courses. That's me using my time to give creative writing courses for free. That is where I find most of my writers. It's doing something like like this with you guys. That's I'm just out there looking for talent. I don't think there is a scarcity of 
talented writers and illustrators of colour. I think there's bags of talent out there. But what I do think is for a very long time, the door felt closed. And so that talent might feel like, do you know what? I might just self-publish or I'm going to go and do it this way and aren't necessarily coming through the traditional methods. I do think there's something around that. And if there's a writer who potentially wants to work with you, how might they get in touch? What's the best way? Oh, well, you, you can see my website, which was my business plan, still going. And there's sort of information about how we work with writers. We use something called Submittable. We ask for a sample of your writing, your interests, any specific sort of skills or areas of knowledge that you have. And the reason why that's important. So, for example, if we go back to this sort of Victoriana idea I have, if you've done a PhD in Victorians, okay, That would be really helpful to know. You wouldn't necessarily know that I was working on an idea based in Victorian England, but something like that is useful to put on the form. Or I love watching horror movies. So I've got a horror idea I'm developing at the moment. Definitely looking for someone who's got a kind of, who could do a horror, but for children. So that's what I want to know. It's like, what genres are you really into? You know, if you can speak multiple languages, that might be useful. Like things like that as well as the writing sample, helps me match the talent with the right project. Great. We'll definitely share that more widely in the community. But I'd like to go back to this in the business. So you're there, you're bubbling along with your ideas. One of them's trickled down. You know it's time to pitch. How do you then go about presenting this to the publisher? What is it that you need to show them so that they have enough to buy, to to know that they can go ahead with the project? So this is why I think my business model and the business model of packaging is so genius okay so normally the way you sell a book is you've got to write the whole bloody thing you've got to write the whole book and then send it to an agent and then the agent sends it to a publisher packager sells off of first three chapters first third of the book okay so you don't write the whole thing you write the first three chapters let's say a storyline the storyline is key. Storyline isn't just a sort of lightly sketched out document. It's a really full document that tells you exactly what happens in each chapter. And some writers will run screaming for the hills if they see something like that. They're like, why would I do that? That is literally the bit that I like to do is work out, figure out what happens. But the reason why that storyline is so important is you need to give the publisher security that the story knows where it's going, that the plot is solid because they're buying off of a sample and not the full thing. So any publisher wants to read the whole thing before putting down their money, okay? Remember all of those people they've got to convince? That is why they want the whole manuscript. They're not going to buy the whole manuscript because traditionally a packager is always sold off of a sample and a storyline. That's the next best thing. But the contract says that Story Mix will deliver a novel based on the storyline that was shown at acquisition. That storyline is absolutely key. It's a really important document. So it's an important document for the writer who uses it as their roadmap. And it's an important document for the editor who's trying to sell that project in-house. So the three things that go to an acquisition meeting is the sample chapters, which Story Mix will have edited and worked with with the writer. and got it really tight and polished and looking fantastic. The storyline, again, which will be tightly plotted, 
edited, ready to go, and a pitch deck that talks about characters, world, comps. So that's another word for comparables, like where it sits in the market. And what we're doing with that pitch deck is trying to do some of the heavy lifting for the editor because in-house, every publisher will have their own acquisition form that they need to fill out where there'll be a big box that says, what are some of the comparables in the market? Where would this sit next to on the shelf? You know, what other things have sold well recently? And that's not just books. It might be stuff on TV. It might be a podcast. It could be other things. So we do that bit of heavy lifting for them. We've got that really pithy log line as well. Nice, strong title. All of those things, because I've been on the other side of the desk, because I've been that editor trying to convince people around that table, I'm really conscious about giving that acquiring editor the tools they need to sell the book in. Sounds like you're doing a lot of the role of the agent as well, what an agent might do, which is to give that background information. Now, I'd love to turn to plotting, because that's, a, as you say, not all writers like plotting, but I think both you and I do quite like plotting. And I know you've been a fan of the story grid methodology, but maybe some others as well. How have you applied maybe the story grid or any other editorial methodologies to your work when you plot? I mean, I cheat. I cheat on the different methodologies. You know, sometimes it's hero's journey, which is the thing that I feel like will unlock. I like to use hero's journey once the storyline is written and it's not working. And then I'll go through and sort of, you know, I'll plot it in and go, oh, that's the bit we're missing. That's the bit that we need, you know, returning with the elixir. Okay, yes, we need that bit. I find story grid and the false cap a really useful place to start in terms of trying to get that sort of macro story right at the beginning before we move to sort of chapter breakdown, which is a much more detailed stuff. But just as a, okay, I have my premise about Victoria and the period of Godchildren. What does that look like at a macro level? Story Grid is really great for that. I've never got on with the snowflake method. You know, everyone's got their kind of favorite bits, don't they? And this three act structure, but I like to then sometimes split that middle act into three acts. So I just, I sort of pick and choose. There's a great little workbook by Darcy. Patterson and that she was the first person who introduced me to the idea of the obligatory scene which is you know it's it's sort of delivering on the promise of the premise and my first novel that I ever wrote I realized after going through that workbook I hadn't delivered on that and I hadn't written it because it felt too hard it was too big it was just too big so I just like it was almost like and she woke up and it was a dream that kind of thing it was really that so um Yeah, I sort of pick and choose. As the company gets bigger and I'm bringing in other storyliners to work with, I'm finding that I maybe need to start being a bit more prescriptive about where to start. So whether to start with a fool's cap or hero's journey, just because there's so many storylines coming in now and I need a framework that I can sort of evaluate stuff. But I am still making all of this up as I go along. That's the truth of it. Mm. Well, it sounds like you're doing a good job, even though you are making it up and yeah. you have a, a high success rate. You said all everything you've pitched has been picked up. And I'm curious about pitching because there might be writers listening here who they're a writer and they're pitching their own book to maybe not so great success. Maybe they're not hearing back. Maybe they're getting turned down. I'm curious, is there anything that you think you're doing better or that maybe other people aren't doing who are pitching or any advice or things that you see people places people stumble when pitching their books? 
Okay. It's a big question. Title. A great title is going to bring your book to the top of the pile to be read quicker. It's not going to get you a book deal. It'll get you read quicker. A good title. And they're really hard. They're really, really hard. But I do think some writers could spend a bit longer thinking about their title. Logline. So that sort of pithy one-liner, and I would start your cover letter with it, right? You want it to be so delicious, that log line. They literally cannot. They cannot move away from that email without clicking into that manuscript because you have got them so hot under the collar for your idea. Like they get so much content. They get so many proposals. So all the time you're thinking about how do I get noticed? And then the other thing, and this is a bit naughty, but the other thing I would say is um, when I read a lot of manuscripts, the story really often starts in the third chapter. And so one of the tricks that I say to writers is your ambition is to hook an agent, is to get them to ask for the rest of the book. And we know that they're really busy people. So even if you put it back in later, Okay, this is what I say, knowing that they will never put it back in. But I say this, even if you put it back in later, because these agents are so busy and they don't have, you know, the attention span, why don't you start the action in chapter three? And don't worry, you can put it back in later. And they're like, okay, okay, okay. And then they start the story in chapter three, which is where stuff really gets stuck. Most of the time you can get rid of the first two chapters. Not always, but most of the time you can. And then the agent might say, oh, I wanted a bit more of this backstory or whatever. And maybe you we- then you know the bits to weave back in, but you don't need the whole of those two chapters. So it's almost a way of tricking the writer into giving themselves their best chance. It's a great hack. Yeah. Secret top tips. Yeah. Start at chapter three. Love it. Now, the thing with children, the children's book market is you sort of have to know it quite well, or you, it's a very, it's a pond in and of itself. And I'm curious about how you keep up to date with it, particularly when you're trying to ideate within that or for that market. I feel like you must need to have a sense of what's been happening or what's being published now, what's coming up. How do you keep up to date? That's a really good question. And I'll just add to it that I don't even think it's just books. When it comes to kids' kids' attention, you're up against Minecraft. (laughs) I say this as my son was furious that he wouldn't be on Minecraft tonight because I'm on the computer. He's like, you do realise I was going to go on Minecraft. And I was like, you do realise mummy's got to work. So Good point. Good point. There are other mediums. Yeah. Yeah. I would say actually kid doesn't exist in a bubble. But if you were going, yeah, in the UK, there's a great publication called The Bookseller. And it's kind of the trade magazine. It's where there's discussions about what's going on in the industry, also what is coming up. So they tend to show the listings of books that are coming in six months time. So by reading that, you can sort of see if there is going to be a trend around pugs. I mean, that did happen. Pugs were everywhere. I don't know why. Llamas. Llamas were another one. So I wouldn't say llama is an evergreen. A unicorn is an evergreen. Llama was a strange llama bubble thing that happened. Yeah, it's just really odd. And I would say joining organisations like uh, Scoop, we call it Scooby, so Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. There's chapters of that all over the world. And then the other top tip, 
if I had a pound for everyone who said, oh, I've got a kid's book. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And what's the last kid's book you read? It's like, oh, I loved Rob Dial when I was a kid. Okay, but who have you read recently? Who are some of the, re- you know, you've got to read what kids are reading today. Like what's popular right now? Like go to the bookshop, go to the library and read what's current now. It's not good enough to just focus those on those books that you read as a kid. Because if we think about the child and it's what in the wider context and the demands on their time, you'll see the difference between books written now and then about how quickly you need to get into the action. And it's the same thing. I was listening to this great documentary about songwriting that we just don't have the attention span that we used to. So, you know, you tend to have the chorus about three or four times. Verses are much shorter and the sort of run up into the song is much shorter if you compare it to songs in the 70s. And when I heard that, I was like, that's exactly what's happened in kids' books. The preamble's all gone, just straight into the action. So um, you've got to read books that are being published right now to understand that, what you're up against. Is it fair to say that for you as a packager, someone who's selling in directly to the publisher, you probably have to keep more up to date with trends, whereas a writer needs to read widely to make sure they're not totally out of date, but they don't have to worry about trends themselves. I think that's fair. And the reason why I think that's fair is because I'm a packager. If I really did see that there was a llama thing about to go down, right? Because I can sell off of three chapters, I can pull that together fairly quickly. And I already have the channels to sell into. Whereas a writer trying to respond to that They'd have to write the whole thing. Maybe they'd have to find an agent. Or if they already had an agent, maybe they could be quick enough to respond to that. But um, it'd be quite hard. I don't actually tend to chase trends because they can exist for a nanosecond. What's really interesting, I'm just going to show, sorry, I have to plug my books. So this is a series. It's called The Lizzie and Bell Mysteries. I started ideating that and working with a writer in 2019. And I remember saying to her, sort of Georgian Regency mystery novel featuring two black girls. This might be a hard sell, but I really believe in these characters and in this story. We're like, let's go for it. And Christmas 2020, Bridgerton dropped. And I I know, and I text her and we were planning to go out with our sample and storyline in Bologna Children's Book Fair, which is March. Boxing Day, I text her and I said, I'm so sorry to text you over the Christmas break, but I know everyone in publishing will be watching Bridgerton. And this is the same time period. And now they've seen Black people in Regency dress. It's like, we've got to be ready to go in January. And bless her, she was like, let's do it. Let's go. And I mean, that was zeitgeisty. But I thank you, Shonda. Always thank you to Shonda. But we were, we were working on that from way back. We couldn't have done that. We were lucky. We were lucky. But the, right, the ability to be able to actually respond when the time comes, you have that advantage, which yeah. is, I'm happy for you, that you have that advantage. Mm. I'd love to turn to the economics of being a packager or a story studio and happy for you to share whatever you feel comfortable with sharing. At the end of the day, to sustain yourself and the bit, it is a business to sell these books in. At what point might a publisher pay you? Is it with an author? It's an advance in royalties. How does it work with you? It's such a good question because actually what I realized what another part of my role is in all of this, if we're going to talk about access for and trying to make it a more equitable industry, publishers take ages to pay, right? So one, the payments happen over three sections. 
some publishers are trying to push for four, right? So you get paid on signature of the contract, you get paid on delivery and acceptance, and that's important, of that first draft, okay? So that could be several edits backwards and forwards before they formally accept. That could be months and then publication. So what I've started to do with the writers that I work with now is my contract with them is I pay them on signature of contract with me. And when they deliver to me, I don't do it over three. I don't tether it to when the publisher accepts because that could be months and months and months. And because we have got some wins under our belt, I'm being probably really indiscreet, but because we've got some wins under our belt and some money, I can say it's almost like the way I should do it and the way my accountant would say to do it is pay the writer when story mix gets paid. But I can just see that that whole way of working is just complete because that one of my writers that I work with, she does freelance work. Now, if she's writing the novel, she can't do freelance work. So she needs to be paid. And I just think publishers aren't actually thinking about material reality of writers when they have thought about how they structure payment. You know, they just haven't thought it through. Right. And you're empathetic with the writer's journey as well. Yeah. So it makes sense. I mean, we talk about similar things with us. And can you share a range on what a publisher might be willing to pay for a book that you'd produce? So the lowest advance I've had on a book has been £1,000. And that was with a small indie publisher. And I really love their vision for the book. And I'm hoping we're going to sell that book all over the world and I'll make some money when it comes to selling in different territories. And actually, because it's such a low advance, if it sells through well in the UK, we'll get royalties sooner. And then the most that I've sold a book for is £50,000. So that's quite a range. I've only sold one book at that level. And that was something called a preempt. So I was going to go out on wide submission. It's a series called Fable House. It's really good, can I just say. It's set in um, a children's home in the early 1950s. And it's these kids who are the result of white British women and African-American GIs. And this is sort of, again, based on true story. Lots of these kids ended up in care. A lot of these kids ended up having quite unhappy lives. But there was a group of children who went to a children's home in Somerset who talk about it being this place called Holnacott House, being the happiest they've ever been, and all of these other children being like brothers and sisters. And that got me thinking, the time period got me thinking about Famous Five and Enid Blyton. Somerset got me thinking about Arthurian legend and the Lamorte d'Arthur that I read when I was at university doing the canon, right? Helpful. And that the fact that there were black knights in that text who were kind of maligned and pushed to the edges. So then I was like, again, this is how it works. I was like, well, what if in this children's home we sort of overlay that with Arthurian legend and they meet a black knight who is sort of woken up from this deep sleep. Why has this happened? Changelings, off we go. That was the idea. And then I found the perfect writer and her voice is so strong. And I knew as soon as, so I knew it was a great idea. I was like, Jasmine, you're on fire. This is a great idea. She sent her samples and I just got goosebumps. I was making dinner for my kids and I just stopped what I was just reading on my phone. I was like, this is so bloody good. I was like, oh my gosh, it's so good. 
And I, as soon as I read it, I knew exactly the editor who would love it. And I sent it to her and she said, please don't send this to anyone else. And she came back with a really punchy offer. So sometimes yeah. it just goes like that. Amazing. That's cool. Thanks for sharing with us. It's so helpful. We try to lift the hood a bit on the industry because it can be opaque to so many of us. So you're an entrepreneur, you're a business owner. What keeps you up at night? What are some of the biggest challenges you're facing right now? I can, that's, that's a really easy one for me. So I would say like operational stuff. That is not really my bag. It's not the stuff that I love. And it's the stuff that I find myself doing more and more of as the company gets bigger. And I actually don't get to do the bit that I love doing, which is storylining. So I'm still doing the sort of initial premise and ideating, but actually getting to sit down and write the storylines or researching. Like I love researching different time periods or mythology. That bit I'm finding that I'm having to ask other people to do. And it makes me feel sad. But I also understand that if you're the CEO of a company, like if I don't do this stuff, like people need to get paid their royalties. Like it has to run properly as a business. So uh, that is a frustration for me at the moment, I would say, trying to figure out what on earth to do about that. We get it. A follow-up question. If anyone is feeling inspired by your story and feels like a deeply creative person like you are, and is likes this idea of book packaging, story studio, any advice or words of caution you might have for someone who might be looking at their own demographic or angle or mission? Any thoughts or advice? Yes. My feeling, again, this is like some packages only work on a flat fee, but I feel, <laughs> trying to be diplomatic, I feel that the writer should have a royalty and you know, if I think about the writer I worked with on this and that she was only on a flat fee, you know, she like if this book blows up, she should be sharing in that success, you know. And I also want her to be out there promoting the book to feel like she is part of the growth of that book and that of that brand. So I would personally avoid working on a flat fee if you're writing, you're being a writer for a packager. What I would say is packaging is more established in the US. There's some big packages in the US. People like Alloy or Kate Literary or another one, they, or Kate Creative, I think they're called now. So yeah, check them out. I think I'm a big believer in having multiple streams of income. So yes, right for packages, but I don't think it should be the only thing that you do. And I think it's completely fine and expected from my point of view that some writers will use us as a launch pad. Okay. So lovely Tola with this series here, but her novel that she's written, her middle grade has blown up. If Macmillan come back and ask for another five of these, I'm not expecting her to say yes, that she'll be available to write them. And that's okay. Like I kind of think it's, part of it that packaging can be part of your journey so I always say I'm in the business of new writers you know I hope there'll be some writers who stay with us and do our books alongside their own I don't think anyone should just be doing packaging you know it's part of the picture but it's not the whole thing thank you that's beautiful and like Susanna says you have such care for writers and it shows it's very refreshing thanks for sharing that Jasmine I mean, we've been talking about your work as an editor and an entrepreneur, but obviously you are also a writer. I'd love to just tap really quickly in my final question into this side of your life. 
So my understanding is you write under your own name, but also under pen names. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about the book that came out this year? Yes, The Armora Curse. Um, Oh, it's a tangled tale, my career as an author. Uh, I'll try and do it quickly. Basically what happened is back in 2013, my agent went out with my first novel and it sold in the US and it didn't sell in the UK. Okay. So it was a strange because actually US is the bigger market. So the fact that HarperCollins US bought three books from me, they were like three book contract with Jasmine, should have been amazing. And it was amazing. But because that book didn't sell in the UK, it felt like this whole writing career as an author, and remember alongside this, I was still working full-time as an editor, was happening to someone else. And it's actually alongside that moment of rage in the bookshop that I had, I think it's taken me a a while to process and accept that UK publishing wasn't ready for a book by me that centred black and brown children having a fantasy adventure and it just being that, okay? So my agent got feedback, which said things like, and at the time I was just like, oh, right, okay, and just swallowed it whereas now I'm like um it's just like oh we really love Jasmine's writing but could she write something a bit more urban right um just this this is 2013 wouldn't say it now I think it didn't wouldn't say it now that's how much stuff has changed um whereas in the US just always that bit further ahead you know so didn't throw them that it was just a fantasy adventure, just fantasy adventure, that's it. So um, only very recently has this book come to the UK. Um, and so this is a book that I sold in 2014 that I then rewrote more recently to publish over here. So it's not straightforward. Sorry, I know you want to probably want that to be a quick answer. And who picked it up in the UK? Who published it? A small indie publisher. So then what happened, and this is set in the UK, this is set in the Cotswolds, right? Because I lived in the Cotswolds at this point. So this is black kids literally having adventures in the countryside, which really isn't urban. Publishers over here were like, we love it. We don't understand why it didn't get picked up the first time. Uh, but it's had a whole life in the US and that that it, that's a problem, right? It's sort of all cannibalized. And also Amazon refused to take the US edition down um, like multiple emails and they were still selling it so the publishers were looking and it's like you can you can literally buy the American one right now so in the end I went with a small indie publisher who are up for for doing it really that's great just one question quickly about your writing for your own work do you apply the same thinking do you look to the market do you add that sprinkle of market know-how before you start writing it depends. So um, I did with this one, hang on, which I did write under a pen name. It's a YA scary novel based around Oliver Twist, but with werewolves and vampires and things, because I knew there was a bicentenary of Dickens's birth coming up. And everyone was talking about how do we make Dickens more exciting for teenagers. And at the same time, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies was massive. It was a really big phenomenon. But we hadn't seen it in kids' books. So 
with this one, I absolutely did just ply mark. It was like a book of the head, whereas it tends to be with the books that I write as me. It's they're not always the most commercial idea. Is the truth of it. Thank you for sharing all of that, and I'm glad that your book did come out in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> so, other than your website, Jasmine Story Mix, how can we stay in touch with you? Are you on any social platforms? Yes, the social platforms. Okay. On Instagram and Twitter, it's at StoryMix Studio. But if you want to connect with me as Jasmine Writer, I'm right on author, W-R-I-T-E, right on author on Instagram, and J Richards Author on Twitter. So come and say hello over there as well. It's wonderful. Great. We'll share all of that with the notes afterwards. Well, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. We'd love to have you back, Jasmine. So let's stay in touch. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm-hmm.